I don't know if you've, if you've been following in the news lately the, this, this fantastic story of the, the rescue of the Thailand soccer team, the, the wild boars, the, the 12 young boys and their soccer coach who were trapped in a mine in Thailand after they'd finished a, a, a practice game and they, they went exploring in one of the mines. And because it's monsoon season over there and the, the water levels uh, in, that, um, in some of those caves, actually they're not mines, they're caves, um, in those caves rose very suddenly and they were trapped uh, over two and a half miles within the cave system. Um, it's been a fascinating story to watch. There are a few stories that pop up on my news feed that really just kind of grab me that the next day I go, I really want to see what happens. But that's one of those that just gripped me and, and I, I've watched it and kind of been following it all the way through until just recently um, all 12 of the boys and their soccer coaches were, were rescued and brought to safety. Um, so, but ju just to add some, some weight to this, because I don't know who's, who's kind of catching up on it, who's not. Um, so, but Joey, show that, show that picture. So here, just so you can get a sense of, of this, I mean, this really didn't land on me until I saw, kind of started looking through some of these pictures. Here's the cave system. Those of you listening online, if you can see that. Um, that's a joke. <laughs> so here's the cave system. <laughs> Two and a half miles in is where the, the, the boys are, are trapped, and you can see just the intricacy of these tunnels. Now, the pictures I found, some of them showed water levels at different areas, and of course, as the monsoon rains came and flooding occurred, the water levels was rise and lower. And so you see some of these areas are flooded, some are not. Um, and, and so this was one of the things the rescue teams had to contend with was at certain times more areas flooded than less. Um, and, and some of these are very deep, some of them are very narrow. Um, it, it was an environmental really just nightmare to try and try and navigate through these these areas just in just to get to where the boys are um, and so the, the team that 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 was put together con comprised of the the Thailand Navy and many of their divers and then others from across the world really came in to to add to this rescue effort I mean it was really a major worldwide endeavor and they were they were uh, me, uh, military medics from uh, Australia that came in, uh, people from, uh, from China came in. There was a multi-billionaire who added his own efforts. He ceased production of, of kind of everything he was doing in his, own, in his own business to devote efforts into trying to make up this sort of mini kid-sized sub that they were hoping to be able to use to get some of these boys out of these, uh, this, uh, this cave system. Um, uh, efforts from the United States, from Britain. I mean, you have many, many countries who came together in order to rescue these boys. Um, and, and just to show you kind of the system they finally landed on, Joey, show that next picture. So here's sort of the buddy system that they had. There were two divers that would go, and a, a, each boy would be, would be tethered to, uh, to, to these two divers. And the boys, none of them had uh, diving experience, and many of them could not swim at all. Um, and so it was a huge challenge to get them not only just to swim and be comfortable in the water, but to navigate and go through the, the rigors of cave diving. I mean, that's really considered by divers sort of the, the, the top tier as far as diving. Um, it requires a lot of, uh, of personal discipline experience um, because if you freak out in a, in a cave, especially in tight places, you're dead. I mean, th there's not much to it, really. Um, so it, it was a major effort to get some of these boys 
out of out of this cave system. And so this was this was the this was what they developed. And the, the lead diver had to carry the oxygen tank uh, for each boy. And so they had to work together in order to navigate through these. And the the rescue effort for these for these twelve boys just took hours and hours. I mean days. You know, and they, they were constantly having to watch environmental factors. Um, so much went into this, this rescue effort. It was really, really phenomenal. And at one point, um, the, the Thai Navy posted a picture on their Facebook page. Um, Joey, show that picture. It's a picture of three divers from different countries locking hands. And the, the slogan that they posted with this said, We, the Thai team and the international team, will bring the wild boars home. It was an effort in in unity across countries to rescue these boys. Um, it, it's, a, it's a phenomenal story. There's already talk of making this into a, a major motion picture as, as so, many, uh, so many fantastic rescue stories uh, are today. But, but really at the, at the heart of this, when we read the story and we, we look at it, 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 sh- it shows really that in all of us there's a desire to be united for great causes. There really is. Um, And, and, and the reality of life is that unity, even for great things, it's hard and it's rare. It's hard and it's rare. And united, unity in the church is desirous, but it's also difficult. It's something that we strive for, something that, that was a topic that permeated all of Paul's letters, was striving for, for you, unity. It's essential to the mission of the church. You think about it with those divers, they had to work together in order to get just one boy out. If they could not work together, that boy would die and probably both those divers would die. Unity is essential. Without it, we crumble. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in Paul's message to the, to the Philippians. His, his charge is for, for unity, to be united. But there's a struggle for that unity. If it, Paul wouldn't waste ink. He wouldn't wait, waste the, the, the papyrus for writing and encouraging unity just as a, as a hypothetical. It's, it's, it was a reality. The struggle for it is, is a reality. So let's dive down in here and just kind of get, get some, some bearings. Paul in, Paul in the first word here in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, therefore, therefore. So something precedes that that's crucial that we lay hold of. Otherwise, we're going to miss what's coming. So what is that? The Philippian church was, they were a growing church, they were mixing it up with the world around them. The rubber of their faith was meeting the road of life, and it was hard. It was hard. Paul says just in the previous verses, 29 and 30, he says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Faith in the real world is hard. You think, think of the parable of the soils that Jesus taught and the various soils and the, and the seed of the word which came down and how easy it was for that seed to be burned up by, by heat, by suffering, to be choked out by the cares of the world, to be snatched away by unbelief from Satan. True genuine faith for it to grow is hard. It's not the default. And so Paul here in his exhortation to the Philippians, remember Paul's in prison in Rome. He's shackled to a, to a Roman soldier there. He's in prison. The Philippians have sent a gift of encouragement to him. 
And his exhortation in, in these previous verses, verses 27 to 30, is Philippian church, be strong and courageous against outside opposition. He says, don't fear those who are against you. Stand firm. Paul, or Alan preached on this last week. Stand firm. Be courageous. You think, it, think back to uh, the Old Testament and uh, the book of Joshua when the Israelites are getting ready to enter the promised land. That's the charge that God gives to them through Joshua. Be strong. Be courageous. Yes, the, your, the odds are stacked against you, but the Lord says, I am with you. Here we have a similar encouragement. Be strong and courageous against outside opposition. But Paul takes this a step further. He says not only against outside opposition, but he says against dissension within. This is where he comes in, in our text this morning. Why does, he, why does he go there? Because our sin nature, the old self, if we're honest, comes out in the midst of, of doing life together. Right? If you've been in church circles long, maybe you've been in, in it a long time, maybe you've hopped in and out, maybe you've even talked to somebody who says, yeah, I was in church once, but I got burned. I felt, felt that, that there was a lot of hypocrisy there. I spoke to a guy just a week ago. That was his story. He said, yeah, I was in church a long time ago. Man, there was so much hypocrisy there. I just I couldn't, couldn't be there. Couldn't be there. That's true. There's an old self that still has to, be, has to be dealt with. And it comes out when we try and rub shoulders and do life together. A lot of times we want to we put the sign outside the church that says we're inclusive, we love everybody. But we struggle to really do that because our sin nature is still at war with the new self. Consider this possibility with the with the Philippians. I mean, just think how this may have played out in the in the Philippian church. Because I think a lot of times we we read the Philippian church and we go, man, they were just the, they were the perfect church. They were sort of the the you know the model child here, and they did everything right and didn't have any struggles. But that's not really true. Paul spends sort of the let, rest of the letter encouraging unity within the body. He speaks to two ladies who are or button heads with each other, and he says, teach them to tell them to live in harmony together. He shows the example of Timothy and, and, and Epaphrodus, who Epaphrodus was the one, if you remember, that the Philippians had sent with the gift all the way up to Rome. And Epaphrodus had gotten sick and he'd come close to dying. And Paul says, I'm sending him, I'm sending him back as an encouragement to you. Paul used his own example of selfless love. He, in the next few verses, which Alan will preach on next week, we have one of the highlights of, of the of Philippians, which talks about Christ's selfless love. Paul spends a lot of time in Philippians talking about this because it's crucial that the church body, that the Philippians got it, that they got it. Because in the midst of their culture, in the midst of doing life in their city, which hopefully we'll see in a little bit is very similar to our own situation, there was the temptation for the church to crumble under disunity. So think, think, of, think of this. I know I'm, I'm, I'm supposing here, but I think putting some some real possible legs under this is helpful for us. Think back to Acts 16. Acts 16 is where Paul, he goes to Philippi for the first time and he preaches the gospel. 
And people come to, to faith. They, they believe. Remember Lydia? She was, the, she was the merchant woman, the seller of purple goods. She was sort of the, the middle class businesswoman who you know, had, had worked hard to, to build a business and was, was successful. And she believed when, Christ, when, when Paul preached at this little women's Bible study that they had. She believed. Do you think maybe after she became a follower of the way, after she became a Christian, she maybe struggled with micromanaging? I think maybe she struggled with thinking, you know what? I've been successful at business. I can be successful at doing church. Here's what we're going to do. You think maybe she struggled with that? Maybe her, her personality didn't quite rub with some others in the, in the church. You think she struggled with that? Maybe she struggled with being generous. Lord had blessed her with, with a successful business. And here she's called to, to give up of her of herself. Maybe that was a hard thing for her to give up whatever she gave up in order to help Paul. What about the jailer? Remember the jailer, this ex-marine who comes to faith from Paul preaching in the, uh, or, or Paul in the jail and, and, and the, the, uh, the gates all go down and the jailer thinks, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, here I am, I'm failing at my job, I've got to kill myself. And before he does, Paul says, hey, wait a second, buddy, we're still here. We're still here, and, and the jailer's just broken over that, that they would stay in the jail and risk execution and still be there. He's just broken over it, and he comes to faith. Do you think he struggled with anger as he grew in salvation, as he grew in the Lord? Do you think he struggled with anger? Do you think maybe he struggled with tenderness towards other people in the church? I'll bet you he did. What about gentleness when wronged? I mean, here's a guy who, his, what he was good at was killing people, was torturing people who had done things against the, 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 the emperor. I think he struggled with not having that same posture towards people who wronged him. What about the slave girl? Remember the slave girl who, uh, she, she, was, she was being used by these men to tell fortunes and make them money? Do you think she struggled with trust issues? Do you think she struggled with trust issues with men? Living out the righteousness of faith is no cakewalk. It was no cakewalk for the Philippians. It's no cakewalk for us in the Christian church today. Firmness against outside forces and gentleness, gentle humility within. That's what Paul's encouraging here. So you, you're going to have... You're going to have outside forces that are against you. Think back to those cave divers. You got water that's rising. You got oxygen levels that are depleting. You got all these things that are going on darkness. You don't really live here underground in this cave in water. You can't survive there. Christian, you can't survive in, in the world, it's not your home. Outside forces against you. And you've got the possibility for dissension within. You think about those, think about two divers and one, uh, and, and one boy. Right? How many times, the temptation to go, I just wish this kid would swim. I think that, I mean, I struggle with this with my own children. You know, we'd sit down at dinner and I'm like, stop eating, stop talking with food in your mouth. You know, just, I, I wish you'd just be an adult. 
But they're not. They're children. They're not. They're children. You as a Christian, if you're in the church, there will always be someone whom you're helping to move along that's a child in the faith. And there's also someone who's, who's maybe more mature than you or, or as mature in you and you're working together. Right? You're tethered together with the gospel. Living out the righteousness of faith is no cakewalk. I'm very encouraged by our church. I really am. In many ways, Haven Ridge is, is, is a lot like the Philippian church. I'm so encouraged when I, I hear of a need and and in the midst of a busy day, I'll, I'll call Alan. I'll go, hey, Alan, look, I, I was thinking about this. We really need to do something for this person. Or, you know, I just got word of this need, and Alan's like, hey, don't, don't worry about it. So-and-so has already called me. They're, they're already on this. You know, the, bo- the body's at work. Love is being shown to someone here. Or somebody else says, I'm really struggling with this, and the, and the body just shows up. I'm encouraged I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by your generosity. But also like the Philippians, in the, amidst the sweet aroma of spirit-empowered fruit, the, there's, the, there's, there's the hint of the pungent odor of disunity. There's tensions amongst people, personality conflicts, struggles. There are there are marriages that are struggling to hold on to life. Many of you have, extend, have relationships with extended family who, who claim to be Christians, but the relationships are riddled with the bullets of bitterness, selfishness, passive-aggressive jabs. I was talking to a lady just the other day who's, who's near our job site, and she was talking about her relationship with, uh, with her family. She claims to be a Christian. They claim to be a Christian. But to hear about the conversations and the, the bickering that goes back and forth through Facebook, through, through phone, phone calls, all of the assumptions, it's a, it's a struggle. Sin nature comes out. Oftentimes we put our selfish agenda first. Our, our relationships with one another so oftentimes are tempted to look less like a rescue effort where we're united for one cause and, and really more like kind of driving through downtown Greenville at rush hour, where everybody's sort of, they're in their own little car, and somebody cuts in in front of them. Curse you! I went the other day to, to Lowe's, 7.15 in the morning. So they're early, pull into the, the, the commercial section right there in front of where, you know, all the builders go. There's no cars, hardly any cars in the parking lot. I pull up fairly close to the front door. I know. Go in, I grab two little tools, and I come back out, and I stand just jaw dropped in the, fr- in, the, uh, in the parking lot. There is a big box truck rental, rental truck parked not just next to me, but on the driver's side next to me. Not just on the driver's side, but two feet, two, two feet. I, I got, went there and I measured it at two feet from my driver's side door. I was frustrated, I was livid. There's all these parking spaces, and this guy has the audacity to park that close to me. And what I didn't think of at this time is, I don't know anything about the guy in this truck. I actually kind of peeked in the truck just to see if he was there. He wasn't. But the things that were in the truck just reminded me. I mean, here's a cell phone. You know, here's, here's kind of some things that are scattered about it. just reminded me of the busyness of life. And I'm like, 
what's in this truck is another image bearer of God. Maybe he's a Christian, maybe he's not. I don't know his story. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why he parked there. But I'm making a lot of assumptions. I'm putting my story first. I'm putting myself ahead of him, of whatever else is, is going on. This is the way we oftentimes handle our driving, isn't it? I'll say, I'll say that's true of me. You know, I got my place to go. I'm taking the kids somewhere. I got lunch I got to go get or whatever. This is my story and you're an obstruction to it. You cut me off. How dare you? No, you're on the wrong side. You're not following the rules. Get in line with the program. We totally miss the boat. Totally miss the boat because we make the story about us. We make the story about us. Folks, we're a growing church. I pray the Lord continue to grow us, but we're also a broken church. We need to remember that daily. We need to remember that daily. We can't come together and expect that, oh, everything's going to be great and, and honky-dory, or we're going to pretend that way, and we're going to hide skeletons in the closet. So how does unity happen? Is there any hope for those skeletons in the closet? Is there any hope for the marriages that are struggling? Two Christians coming together? There's struggle there. There's tension. Is there any hope there? Is there any hope for broken, extended family relationships? Is there any hope for people within the church who just can't see eye to eye on things? Who resolve to say, well, we're going to just agree to disagree and I'm going to sit over here and you're going to sit over there and we're going to smile and wave at each other, but we're actually not really going to be reconciled. Is there any hope? Thankfully, thankfully, Paul says, yes, yes, there is, there is hope. He gives us four certainties here in, in chapter 2, verse 1. Four certainties that fuel unity. And, and notice these are certainties. I'm not sure which translation you have. Uh, I'm, I read the, the NASB. It's what I typically read from. But the if-then clause that, Paul's, that follows right after the therefore says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love. These are not possibilities. These are certainties. These are assurances. Paul Barth in his commentary captures this well. He says, the if could be translated as sure as. As sure as there is encouragement in Christ. As sure as there is any consolation of love. As sure as there is any fellowship of the Spirit. So these are certainties. So let's walk through these. First one, any encouragement in Christ. As sure as there is any encouragement in Christ. That encouragement, what, what does it mean for an encouragement? It's an emboldening. It's a strengthening, a fervoring of us. You see this in the apostles. You think about the apostles. I mean, here is this timid, motley crew of men, fishermen. You've got a tax collector. You've got a religious zealot who would just as sure kill somebody as he would sing praises. We've got this motley crew of guys all together um, that in the Gospels really just show that they butt heads. You know, if this were, the, if this were the, the, the World Cup soccer team, you know, that's playing today, France and Croatia, they'd be in trouble. If you were looking at this as sort of the story, uh, uh, you know, of one of those teams coming together, trying to accomplish something, and you're reading this, you're reading the Gospels, you'd go, this team is in trouble. But you get to Acts. Christ is gone for all practical purposes. This team should have just disbanded. From a worldly perspective, 
if you're writing the story, you go, this team's done. You know, why, why are there more pages in this book? It should end right here. But it doesn't. There's an emboldening and an, encouraging, an encouragement that comes to them through the death, burial, burial, and resurrection of Christ that sends them out into the world and they turn the world upside down with the gospel message. What an encouragement Christ was to them. Christ said at the end of the gospel of Matthew, and lo, I will be with you. And lo, I will be with you. They didn't believe that was just some sort of a theological construct. They believed he will actually be with me. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Go the other way. Just to give you some, some of these. And we could go all over the place. We really could do a whole sermon series on this. But just to go one place. Where do we find encouragement in Christ? Ephesians 1, chapter 7. The, whole, the first chapter of Ephesians is rich with, with, with encouragement. Ephesians 1, 7. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Do you hear that? That in Christ, through His blood, there is no condemnation from God. That was Paul, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no, no fear of God, no fear of the punishment of God in Christ. No fear of that punishment now, whatever suffering you may be going through, is if you are in Christ, is not punishment. It may be a refiner's fire, but it is not punitive. There's no punishment after. After death, there is no punishment there. There's no fear of man, no real fear of man. No real genuine fear of man. If man is created by God, even though in his image, there's no real fear of what man might say of the judgment of man. No condemnation. Paul goes on. Look at, look at verse 10. He says, sorry, I have that wrong. Verse 9. He says, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, in Christ. This is the Father purposing in Christ with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of times. So that is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. And one encouragement we have is the knowledge of the mystery of God's Revealed will. What encouragement it is to know that your life, that in your life all that you go through is not meaningless, it's not purpose, purposeless, purposelessness. It has purpose, it has intention, and that that is good. Contrast that with our, with our culture. Right? There's a permeated sense of cynicism in our culture now. There's a sense that, that humor has sort of given rise. We, we take things lightly, but humor is a poor comforter when genuine suffering comes. Many will say that, even, even in our Bible book culture, oh, well, all things happen for, for a reason, but they cannot tell you what that reason is. Whereas we can look at Scripture and say, we know what that reason is. It's not so that you will be exalted. It's so that Christ will be exalted. Why did, why did Jesus pull, 
Paul out of everyone and say, he's going to be my vehicle through which the Gentiles will be saved. And he will say, I will show him. It, it will be through him. Uh, I'm shooting from the hip here. <laughs> I don't have this in my notes. He will say, I will show him how, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Why did Jesus say that to Paul? About Paul? You look at, 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 at Philippians and where Paul says so much. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I desire to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. I press on for the glory that is to be revealed. He says, all of these things, Christ was his greatest treasure. And how did he view suffering? I consider all things as lost, as lost compared to the knowledge of gaining Christ. Jesus was Paul's greatest treasure. What Jesus meant when he said, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake is I'm going to show him that I am truly valuable more so than anything else. And that's, that's not just an idea, but that's, he's going to experience that in real life. He's going to experience that in real life. Giving the oppor- being, being given opportunities to treasure Christ more than whatever, than, than religious duties than money, than a retirement package, than power, all of these things. And Paul said, yes, I'll take Christ over all of those things. Back in Ephesians. Sorry, I kind of derailed there. Verse 11, Paul says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. We have encouragement in the fact that through Christ we have an inheritance. We may long for an earthly inheritance. Maybe you've got a rich, eccentric uncle or somebody that you think, you know, I'm, I'm putting kind of my stock in getting something from them or the, or the hope of getting something from a, from a parent or, or something like that. At, at best, it's temporal, it will fade, and ultimately it won't satisfy. Our inheritance in Christ is eternal, and it's far more glorious than we can ever, ever imagine. We have the first deposits of that now, growing in Christ-likeness, that we call that sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness, and that's comforting and good. It's comforting and good. You ever made something with your hands? You know, anything. I mean, paper, airplane, Maybe I'm stretching here, you know. Crafts as a kid. Okay, I'm going to go with this. Um, I work as a carpenter, so you get carpentry and tangible examples. When you make something even small, a cake, you know, a pancake, whatever. There, I got somebody. When you, when you do that and, 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 it, and, and it is fashioned for the purpose that you designed it for, you say, that's good. That's good. It's an echo for us as, as being created in the image of God when we fulfill the purpose for which God has designed us to bring him, live in such a way that shows that he is our greatest treasure. That's good. There's a comfort to that. There's an encouragement to that. It says, this is what I was made for. Not living for my own glory. Not living for my own career. Not living to try and make something of this thing we call Church. But living such that 
people see Jesus as my greatest treasure, that he gets the glory. And we say, that's encouraging. That's good. That's the inheritance that I want, is to be in his presence. And it's interesting, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were getting ready to enter the promised land, and the, the land was being divided up, you know, Gad got this section, and the half-tribe of Manasseh got this section, and uh, um, uh, Judah got this one. I mean, they're dividing all of these up amongst the tribes. And then it comes to the Levites, and they're like, okay, our turn. And they go, well, you don't get land. Your inheritance is the Lord. First reading, that's like, well, that's not fair. But the reality is that was a better treasure. That is a treasure that cannot be taken and what does the New Testament say of us as Christians? Paul, Peter says in, in his first epistle, we're a kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. Our inheritance is the Lord. It's secured by Him. Cannot be taken from us. Second one. So the, the first certainty is encouragement in Christ. Second, any comfort in his love. As sure as there's comfort, as sure as there's consolation in his love, it's a, the term is speaking in a friendly or a soothing way. You ever been, you ever been stressed, been anxious, and you know, your, your mind's not thinking clearly? Perhaps a friend, a loved one comes up to you and speaks in an encouraging, comforting way that soothes your soul? You may not even remember anything that's said, but the manner in which they talk to you is just comforting. That's the sense in which God's love speaks to us. Hear this from 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. You see that Paul speaks of the comforts of God for us so that we can comfort others. Just read through the Psalms. You want to know the comfort of God? Read through the Read through the Psalms. There's 150 of them. I just finished reading through, through those this past week. I never read all the way through the, the Psalms. Just finished reading through them. What a wonderful encouragement and comfort the Psalms are. The Psalms are theology meeting real life. I mean, here are real people pinning real struggles in life, crying out to God, receiving comfort from Him, praising Him for comfort, Reminding themselves of God's loving kindness and faithfulness. That God grants and gives comfort. Third one. If there's any common sharing of the Spirit. If there's any common sharing of the Spirit. Paul speaks here of, of our collective as a, as a body. Not individual here, but as a body. Our sharing our, uh, of the Spirit. It's a possession as a result of an inheritance. Paul speaks to this further in, 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 Corinth, or, uh, in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. 
He says, in him, also in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit seals us, or the Holy Spirit is a seal for us, as an empowerment to us. The Holy Spirit seals the Father's children. It's the stamp that says, this one's mine. This one's mine. This one belongs to me. It's the empowerment for following and doing His will. The will of God carried out by His people, empowered by His Spirit. That means that when we, when we come together and we find and we find unity in our stories together. That means when Antoine and I talk about what God's doing in our life, he works in a different area than I do. When we talk together, we'll find commonalities about the way that the Lord is working in our stories together. That means that when we get together as groups and we and we share about what the Lord has been doing, there's encouragement there because the same spirit that is in you is in me. And God is working out the same purposes in you that he's working out in me to redeem a people for himself. We'll find commonalities in those stories. And as those stories come together, they paint the picture of the grand narrative of God redeeming all things to himself. There's great encouragement in that. When we come together and we go, hey, God is actually doing this thing. God is actually doing this thing. And the fourth one, any tenderness and any compassion. Paul speaks on this. He says, recall the tenderness and compassion that Christ has had for you. Recall that. This is why, this is why I, I love and I call the, the doctrine of total depravity precious. It's, it's, it's precious because it makes the light and the value of the gospel so glorious. It says, Christ has had tenderness and compassion on me because I can see the own I can see my own dirt. I see my own filthiness. I see my own unworthiness. And yet in spite of that, Christ has had mercy on me. These are not merely theological truths that are abstract from our lives. So often when we get together and we and we we talk about the truths of Scripture. We talk about them in academic terms. We talk about them in categorical terms that, 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 that are somewhat removed from the realities of, of life. And, and these truths, these certainties are meant to meet us in the middle of life. So let me ask you, do you know these truths experientially? Or only conceptually. What encouragement do you have in Christ? I mean, really, what encouragement do you have in your life in Christ? What comfort of love has the Father shown you? What about your sharing of the Spirit? Can you look in your life and say, here is where Spirit-empowered work has occurred. And God gets the glory for that. God gets the glory for that. Do you know the tenderness and the compassion of God for you? 
is your relationship with Christ fundamentally different than your relationship with, say, Abraham Lincoln? You know, I love Honest Abe, right? Honest Abe, historical figure, character to be exalted. Many of us would point to Abe and say, hey, here are some good things that I want to be part of my life. And we could honestly say the same of Jesus. But as our relationship with Jesus, it should be fundamentally different than our relationship with Honest Abe. Not just a figure in history to which we point to and say, I want to follow after these guys' good morals. Can we say with Paul, this, this, the work that he has done on the cross has changed me, has reoriented my heart, turned it upside down so that I love God more. So that Christ is my treasure. Can you draw from your spiritual bank on these certainties? Because when the rubber of your faith meets the road, and for many of you, that's where you are. In the midst of your relationship with one another, in the midst of your marriages, in the midst of your family, in the midst of your work, the rubber of your faith is meeting the road. You need to know that these certainties are not just concepts, but they are realities. Going to Christ, going to God in the Scripture and finding encouragement, reminding yourself of these things, crucial. So what does Paul do with this? Because Paul means for these, encourage, these encouragements, these certainties to do something for us. He says, let me get back to, Ephesians, to Philippians. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and any compassion, he says, as sure as these things are true, then what? We've talked about unity. And unity is the easiest thing to go to in this passage. It's the, one of the clearest things. Be unified in selfless love. But what's interesting is that the main exhortation in this Greek sentence, in verses 1 through 2, is one long, big Greek sentence. The main, uh, um, the, the main exhortation, the main emphatic verb here is, make my joy complete. Paul says, make my joy complete. Now, in, in Paul's time, you kind of have to get a sense of what Paul was dealing with here. Because in Paul's time, there were two main primary competing philosophies that, that were battling really for, the, for sort of the, the, the minds of the academic elite. You know, the, the powers that be, these were the main philosophies that were, that were battling. One was Epicureanism and one was sto uh, the Stoics. And the Epicureans were, were about maximizing joy and minimizing suffering. This was, this was sort of the lifestyle. It's maximize joy and pleasure, and we want to minimize suffering. Does that sound a lot like our day? We want to kind of run from suffering. Everything is about let's, let's, your happiness, your happiness, your happiness, and suffering is, is abhorrent. Any sense of suffering in the broad sense, we want to put that away, and we want to max, maximize happiness and pleasure for now. The other side of it was the Stoics. The Stoics that said, well, we're going to sort of position ourselves in an aloof state. We're going to divorce ourselves from experiencing any of these emotions so that we don't suffer. So the, the, the way to get away from suffering, the way to experience joy, is to simply divorce ourselves from it. And, and doesn't that sound a lot like sort of our, our, 
our, our academic world is, well, we can, we can kind of science ourselves out of all of these things and turn everything into empirical formulas and, and mathematical equations and A plus B equals C, and, and we'll, we'll sort of divorce ourselves from any sort of, uh, of, of suffering. And, and, and by that also, we won't really experience joy. And I will sort of just kind of live in this middle ground state. Paul's dealing with both of these perspectives in, in Philippi. And the church is dealing with this too. And so Paul reorients joy here. He reorients joy. What he's saying is that joy and the, his joy and the Philippians' joy are not mutually exclusive. So joy comes through humility. And the, uh, and the Greeks despised humility. It was considered a weak virtue. And they despised humility. And Paul lifts it up and he goes, no, no, no. Christ, the Son of God, was exalted to the throne because of his humility. Alan, there's your sermon for next week. <laughs> That's what he says. And he says, now you live in that same way. That's how... That's how... You're exalted. John Piper writes this. He says, All joy has in it an impulse to demonstrate the beauty and value of its object. All joy has in it an impulse to demonstrate the beauty and value of its object. So here, here's the pattern in Paul. Here, here's, can we, let's try and lay hold of what Paul's saying here. He says that Christ demonstrated selfless love for us, for Paul. That's the next section in this letter. And, and, and this was for the joy set before Christ. Here's Hebrews 2, 12-2. Uh, Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Christ's joy was to honor the Father by mean, being the means through which the Father would rescue the world from corruption. Do you see that? Paul wanted, Jesus wanted to honor the Father. He says, I'll lay aside my rights, my privileges. I'll set them aside. And I'll, I'll take on flesh. I'll go to the cross. I'll take the penalty. I'll die the death that they deserved. So that God would be honored so that the Father could redeem all things to Himself. Christ's joy was to honor the Father by being the means through which the Father would rescue the world from corruption. And this gospel, this personal and this meta-narrative gospel, rocked Paul's world. It turned his heart upside down, and his greatest desire became knowing Christ. It became hitching Paul's wagon to the work of God through his relationship with the Son. And, and that was joyful. And, and that, joy, uh, in that joy for Paul had to demonstrate itself somehow. Had, it overflowed and had to demonstrate itself somehow. How did it demonstrate itself? It demonstrated itself in Paul's selfless love for others. And we see this throughout Philippians. Paul saying, I don't, I don't care, I don't care if, if Christ is preached and some preach from good motives and some preach from wrong motives. I don't, I don't care who gets the glory for that. As long as Christ is preached, Christ will get the glory for that. I don't want the glory. I want Christ to have the glory. 
And so now Paul calls the Philippians to have the same joy in Christ and that that joy would overflow to selfless, selfless love for each other. He says, make my joy complete by letting your joy in Christ, all of these certainties, all these assurances, let them overflow in your love for one another. One commentator says this. I thought he put it well. He said, The only solution to disunity is to have our hearts overwhelmed with wonder at the fact that we have received such unnatural, supernatural, selfless love from the creator of the universe, the triune God who pours out his manifold grace on us in encouragement, love, comfort, partnership, and tender compassion. So let me ask you this morning, what would make your joy complete today? What would make your joy complete is it getting a promotion at work? Is it maybe a sandwich here in about 20 minutes? A nap? Is it, I just wish my spouse would fix this problem. What would make your joy complete? Can you, can you say with Paul, my joy is in Christ. And I'll set aside, set aside my own personal ambitions. I'll set aside my own small little sandbox toys give up of these for the holy good of, of others of my spouse of my kids my co-workers people I go to school with you say with Paul live in such a way that others see that Christ is my greatest treasure and Christ is my greatest treasure and the overflow of that is that I'm going to give up of myself for, for others I'm going to go be reconciled with this person that I have this grudge against or this person has a grudge with me. What makes your joy complete today? Paul irons out two aspects of what this looks like in the church for unity. And I don't have time to work through them in detail, but I'll, I'll give you the, the categories for him for him. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind intent on one purpose. He says, be united in your convictions. As, as Christ is our identity, our mind is Christ. So the more we look at the scriptures, the more we, we understand who Christ is and who we are in relation to him, the more the gospel has its effect on our hearts, the more our minds are aligned with Christ and the more our lines together minds are aligned together with Christ is that going to be perfect no no it's not going to be perfect but the primary points the primary aspects of uh, of, uh, of the saving work of God in us and for the world will, will, will bring us into conformity together this is have unity and convictions he also says maintaining the same love and united in spirit. Some, some versions say uh, of one accord. That literally speaks of, of souls in harmony together. It says, you know, it's not enough that we agree theologically, but that we actually care for one another. That we care for one another. Jesus says, how will they know that you're dis my disciples? By your love for one another. By your love for one another. To see the gospel clearly enough to know that our, when our selfish desires are rearing their ugly head, speak truth to ourselves, to set those desires aside, and to consider the other person more important than ourselves. 
So the testimony of Scripture is that God has a, a passionate and compassionate attachment to His people. And as we grow in our relationship with Christ, this should become more clear in our experience with the world. I mean, you spend most of your time not in the fellowship of God's people, but out in the world. And so, so the light of the gospel should become more clear in your own lives, in your own experience out in the world. And as we seek to stand firm in that, and we experience his encouragement, we experience his comfort, we experience his empowering is empower, empowerment in the world, it makes our fellowship together so much sweeter. We should desire to come together because we're unified in these things and we see them, we experience them. I remember when I was, uh, my first year at, at college, um, when I was at school, the school I was at was a small school and um, there was uh, just a, a lot of a lot of darkness there. The, the Christian population was very, very small. In fact, I was the only male in, in the Christian group I, I was in. Uh, it was a very interesting time because when we had guys night, that was all me. <laughs> um, but there was a small, there was a little church that was right near, near the, the school. And um, it, it was a little church. Most of the, the folks there were, were a lot older than me. Uh, they had grandkids and the, the pastor was a, a little short man who spoke with a slight stutter. And, um, you know, I don't remember that his sermons were all just knock me out of the park, you know, kind of much like mine. Um, you know, but what I do remember is that that, that church family loved me. You know, they, they, I, it was a refreshing time to go on Sundays to this, you know, to this church. It wasn't about the music. It wasn't about the sermon. They didn't have smoke machines. I mean, all these things. I mean, here's just a good, you know, good group of young or, or older Southern folks getting together and just loving on each other, you know, being encouraged through the word. That was such an encouragement for me because of the darkness that I saw in school where I was. Wasn't, there was little encouragement there in the way of gospel life and gospel fellowship and gospel community. But I had that in the church. Folks, this is what we are as the church, should be an encouragement to one another. That the display of God's love for us that we see in the scriptures, that we experience through his spirit in our lives outside should overflow in the same display of that type of love, comfort, encouragement with one another. So let the, let the gospel capture your heart. Let it not just be an idea. You experienced all of the comfort that God gives you. May, may your joy be the same as Paul's joy. May it be an encouragement to you. May it strengthen you. May it encourage you to love others selflessly. Let's pray.